And they no longer expect that they will automatically get an ambulance. They, you know, as often described to people, you don't walk into a hospital triage and say, I'd like you to admit me to the coronary care unit. You get triaged, you work out what's wrong by a health professional and you get the care you need. It's exactly the same being applied in the, the paradigm of ambulance service delivery here in Victoria and a number of other states around Australia. And welcome back to another edition of EMS One Stop International Edition. Uh, if, if you've been listening, you know I'm traveling around the world slowly. One country, or as it happened so far, one continent a month. I started off in Rwanda. I then jetted up to Norway, and I've now gone down under to Australia. And I really want to welcome an old mate of mine, and uh, he's a good guy. You're going to enjoy meeting him if you haven't heard of him before. Welcome Tony Walker. G'day, Rob. Welcome. Oh, good to speak to you. Yes, indeed. And the beauty of time travel is I'm actually talking to you from your yesterday, <laughs> and you're talking to me from my tomorrow because you're on the other side of the dateline. So, Tony, why don't you do us all a favour, please, and just give us a resume, bio, and introduction. Certainly. 37-year history of uh, being a paramedic with the ambulance services in Victoria, Australia. Um, multiple roles, uh, senior leadership roles in clinical governance and operations. And uh, for the last eight years prior to retiring from that role in October last year, I was the Chief Executive Officer of Ambulance Victoria, which was uh, um, providing EMS services to the whole of the state, uh, about, uh, sorry, about 5 million people um, uh, across the whole state um, uh, and uh, delivering uh, emergency ambulance transport and retrieval services. So just to give folk an idea of the scale of Australian services, whilst you know that there is 15,000 registered EMS systems in America, there's not that many in Australia, but just talk about firstly the size of Ambulance Victoria, the scale of the operation you had to deal with, particularly geographically, and then talk about the organisation of uh, ambulance services in Australia in general. Certainly. Um, so each of the ambulance services in Australia um, and New Zealand are, um, uh, are essentially jurisdictionally based. So they're based around the states or territories um, um, uh, of, uh, of make up uh, the continent of Australia. Um, ambulance Victoria, if you wanted to get a sort of a sense of the size, is one of the smaller footprints of, of state and territories across Australia. But it's um, basically the UK on its side. So if you turn the UK onto its side, you've roughly got uh, the size of uh, the size of the footprint of, uh, of what Victoria uh, manages, and um, um, it's managing um, uh, probably close to uh, three or four thousand cases a day. Uh, it's providing um, uh, it's it's um, got a workforce of close to seven thousand um, paramedics and volunteers, first responders, uh, and um, um, providing helicopter paramedical retrieval services um, uh, and emergency management services to the whole state. So unlike Many of the other services around the world, which tend to be um, um, local government-based, um, uh, each state in each state and territory in Australia and New Zealand has a, uh, has its service uh, built around the uh, around the actual whole uh, whole territory jurisdiction. Um, so uh, it, it's managed by the states, not federally. So while you have federal funding for health more broadly in Australia, um, each state and territory manages its own ambulance service. The majority of them are actually part of the health service and health system, so sit within the departments of health, either as statutory authorities or part of a government agency. Um, other than South, uh, sorry, uh, Northern Territory and Western Australia, which are 
um, both governments there contract their ambulance services to St John, who provide those services under contract to uh, uh, to the uh, to the state uh, um, states and territory governments. Uh, so it's a um, uh, tends to be a model that has been built off the history of uh, of St John. So St John were the first ambulance services within Australia or all over Australia. Um, and over time, those services have um, um, have been taken over um, by government agencies or contracted out, as I mentioned before, uh, um, and have uh, developed in their own own way um, on the basis of uh, on the basis of the particular needs of those communities. WA, I mean, it's essentially uh, a significant uh, footprint. Uh, you know, you, it's, we're dealing with it can take you eight or nine hours to get to a case uh, in some parts of that uh, that uh, that state. So we're we're dealing, while I manage the ambulance service in one of the smaller states, um, we've got some pretty big space um, um, spread out um, across across the country that ambulance services have to um, develop models of care to respond to. So to use the, uh, the classic American method of measurement, right, if you had to drive from one end of your service to the other, how, how long would it take you? It would take me around about, uh, what are we talking, it's probably a be oh gosh now you're testing me a bit here Rob I think it would be we're probably talking about 20 hours um, um, I would expect I think um, yeah it's about about 20 hours I would think to get from uh, from Mildura to Malakuta the, the probably the top corner to the bottom corner right so if you're listening in your service in the US that's uh, if you've got 20 hours from one end of your first due to the other then uh, you know you're talking the same level of as Tony and as Tony said it's actually a smaller service uh, than than the rest of the ones in Australia um the patient themselves so you, so it's a governmental or state funded organization but uh, how does the patient get their health care? Is it like the National Health Service in the UK? Is it free at the point of delivery? Is it an insurance model? Or where does it kind of sit in that scale? So, so Australia's health system runs on a, um, uh, a dual model. So essentially, it's what's known as Medicare in Australia. It, uh, um, every person pays a, um, a, a Medicare tax, if you like. And so you have um, essentially free access to, pub, to hospital care um, that if you need it. Um, uh, you can also, um, a number of Australians um, have private health insurance who can also access the private hospital system as well. But uh, essentially any person, um, you walk up into a hospital, get brought in by ambulance, you, uh, your care is free. Um, um, that doesn't apply to the ambulance services. So that's funded federally by the um, federal government for the, health, the broader hospital system. Um, but the ambulance services are funded by the state governments. And so that's a, the different models in Victoria. The, um, the service there runs on a combination of government grants um, and on a membership subscription scheme. So people pay um, uh, $50 a year as an individual and they are entitled to free ambulance transport um, uh, um, um, as required. Um, some of the other states have uh, built it into levies, built into, for example, their rates or electricity bills, um, and others are fully funded by the state, uh, state or territory governments as um uh, as part of the normal uh, normal um, taxation arrangements within those states, so um, different models of care and can catch people out a bit. Uh, funding, I should say, it can catch people out a bit if they're uh, they're not not aware of what's happening in the various state or territory they're in. Excellent, thank you for answering that, and that really puts it into perspective. And and that's the reason we're doing this series, just so people can get an understanding of how it compares to what they're used to here in uh, in the United States. Um, you described the kind of organizational layout of the service but actually operationally now is every ambulance a double paramedic manned how does the composition of, of the, the system work and then how is it deployed it does vary around around the country but but in essence 
in in the urban areas of Australia, um, it is a uh, uh, it is essentially a two paramedic crewed ambulance that will respond. Um, the um, most states and territories are running a two tiered model, so they'll have a uh, an advanced life support degree qualified para- paramedic crew responding to primary cases, and they'll have a uh, intensive care paramedic uh, second tier to cases that may require certain interventions and that looks a little bit different in each state and uh, state and territory but in essence it's um, those intensive care paramedics are able to intubate a number of them are able to use rapid sequence intubation um, a range of other um, other interventions at that level so that two-tier system in urban areas um, operates uh, across largely across the urban parts of of australia Um, as you move out into more rural areas then it tends to be a combination of paramedics working with volunteers um, or volunteers themselves providing those services, either as uh, crewed ambulances or as first responder teams operating as part of the ambulance service um, to co-respond until the ambulance uh, ambulance arrives. So different models operating in rural areas, again, have uniquely been developed, I suppose, to meet the needs of those particular communities. But when you get into the more urban areas, um, um, paramedic, uh, uh, either single paramedic with a volunteer or first responder or, a, um, or two paramedics working together. So you used the D word, Tony. I wasn't going to bring it in just yet, but you said the word degree. And so <laughs> let's talk about uh, training and or education. Mm. So if I have just left high school and I want a career in paramedicine and want to get into your service, what's the route? Uh, you go to university. Um, so uh, Hang on a second. Of- I don't do a 12-week course and jump on the truck? Uh, no, 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 no. You, okay. You- you do a you do a three year um, undergraduate degree, um, uh, similar to nursing and other health professions here, and that's not always been the case. It's been that way since about the mid uh, mid two thousand and five two thousand and six in Victoria, and most other states have adopted that over the, the last few years. Uh, but no, you you apply to university, you uh, you get accepted. In Victoria, we have uh, four universities delivering undergraduate paramedic programs. Uh, probably putting out about a thousand paramedics a year into into the into the um, into the broader uh, into the broader system, um, and it's a registered profession across Australia. So um, when you qualify with your university degree, you're a registered paramedic and uh, able to apply for employment with any ambulance service. And in fact, ambulance services are only able to employ registered paramedics in paramedic roles. We do have first responders. We do have. Uh, um, um, uh, community officers and others who are vocationally trained by the service themselves who may complete a 12-week program to work either on the ambulance or working with a, a paramedic on the ambulance. But, uh, no, it's a degree, degree qualified. It's, it's been unique, Rob, in the sense that it's um, it's changed the, the uh, demographic of the service. You know, we, we were predominantly, in fact, when I started, we were a male or it's completely male-orientated service. Um, um, we, that was slowly changing over the years. But with the move to higher education, Universities, by their nature, are more inclusive. So you're recruiting from a much more inclusive base. Um, and today, in Victoria, for example, 52% of the staff uh, and frontline staff are women. Um, it's uh, it's and that's that's that 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 round that level is happening all around Australia. In fact, nearly 70% of graduates coming out of university are women. Uh, so you know, in, in the next decade or so, I wouldn't be surprised if we see you know predominantly women. Um, um, uh, as, as making up the majority of uh, staff working frontline and ambulance services around this country. Like the US, I mean, there's an expectation you finish high school, you go to college. Obviously, that that's therefore probably the same or a fair comment in Australia. Uh, 
your average US uh, graduate is then mired in debt for a long time. So mm. if everyone's going to university there, how does it work in Australia? Is there massive student debt or is there a different methodology of funding a degree? Uh, so there, there is, there is a, um, yeah, it's a co-funded model. So essentially the, the federal government fund universities and fund paramedic places within universities. You can apply for one of those as an Australian citizen um, um, and you, um, uh, you, you essentially pay an amount. Uh, I think it may be around about five to eight thousand uh, dollars a year um, now. Um, but you're basically paying a, paying an amount that you can take out as a loan with the government. So essentially, you can have a loan that basically you pay off as you earn certain income over time uh, to to pay that that uh, that debt off. So anyone can access that university course. Anyone can access that um, that loan from government. Um, you only start paying it back when you hit a particular income threshold that basically allowed that, that you can afford to do so. Okay, now that you've made America green with envy from that uh, statement, Tony, <laughs> let's just take a second to have a message from our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioural health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Welcome back. I'm talking to uh, Professor Tony Walker, a former Chief Executive of Ambulance Victoria and now a professor at uh, Monash University, amongst other things. And we're talking about uh, EMS and ambulance services down under. So far, we've checked off the model. We've talked about funding. Uh, we've just talked about education and and the degree process. Just want to pick up one further thing about the amount of graduates that you are then producing out of uh, universities in Australia. Of course, what we've seen back way back when was the sort of exodus, the walkabout, as as you'd like to call it, uh, up to London, up to the UK to work in services there. Are you actually overproducing uh, graduate medics then? Is that what's going on? Well, there's some fears from some people that we are. I don't think we are. I think if you look at the um, um, the growth in ambulance services, particularly to meet the, uh, the post-COVID environment and during the COVID environment, um, there is a, a high demand for, for paramedics working and there's registered professionals now. They can work both in ambulance services and outside of ambulance services. So um, uh, the other big piece is as the demographic of the workforce changes, not everyone wants to work full-time anymore. So we're seeing, you know, it's not a single paramedic FTE model. It's a, it's a, you know, people are working fractionally. So you need more paramedics to essentially allow you to cover your services where you're doing that. So, uh, no, I don't think we're overproducing in Australia. I think we, um, uh, and in fact, um, I, the reality is that people are getting jobs either within the ambulance sector um, or in the non-emergency patient transport sector or uh, um, in other industries. Um, importantly, also, the models of care are changing. So, you know, a big proportion of the work now done by ambulance services around the country is now done through what we call secondary triage. So we're seeing, um, you know, people, nurses and others being employed, for example, in, in paramedics in those environments, which are now managing 20 to 30% of the triple zero you know, 911 workload before ambulance is even sent. So different models of care are also creating new opportunities for paramedics as well. Thank you for answering that. A few episodes ago, I had the guys from Team Australia EMS on uh, Colin Allen, Neil Noble, and they, they were over in San Diego at the time. And I went down there to 
meet up with them when they were running study tours. And one of the things that they said was to give the graduate an edge when they're applying for jobs is to actually just show on their resume, on their CV, that they've been and done something that's like the study tour to the, to the U.S., and I know that uh, we're on the cusp, I think, of uh, getting the, the reciprocity, the challenging of the National Registry, and the visa stuff ready to perhaps even have a cohort of, uh, of Aussies coming over here. So, you know, it's it's interesting times, and we hope to see, you know, some Australians here soon that uh, that maybe just want to get, get a little bit more experience in a different country before coming back to you. You mentioned some clinic, the clinical. That's next on my list to talk about. Clinical innovations, and obviously you talked about then, you know, it's not always just going to an to an emergency room or an emergency department, and so you know what is the kind of the, the, the clinical delivery models that are going on out there, um, community paramedicine, um, and you know is is nurse triage, um, telemedicine a big thing or is it emerging? Is it well established? Uh, what is the situation? Well, I think you know, it's no question over in, in Victoria, a number of the services around Australia over the last decade or so they've shifted from the you call we haul model of ambulance service delivery to the uh, to a more nuanced approach because the reality is we know at least one in five people who call triple zero, our national equivalent of 911, don't require an emergency ambulance. And so new models of care have been developed. We've worked very strongly by looking at our research data to uh, look at the uh, MPDS grid and uh, um, where the disposition of those patients go to. So, yes, reduce significantly the number of lights and sirens responses, which has enabled us to, um, to create um, um, different pathways for people. And I'm of the view we're only limited by safe clinical pathways that we can develop in partnership with others. And so secondary triage now, um, if it's not an emergency call that requires an emergency ambulance, it goes to the secondary triage team who will work through to manage um, that particular patient through an agreed pathway, um, send it back to the emergency transport if they can't identify one, but it it does free up emergency ambulances for emergencies. And um, those pathways have been enhanced by telemedicine, um, um, there's certainly uh, and the pandemic if you like gave us permission to do and try things that otherwise maybe we wouldn't have um, and they create a great safety net secondary triage provides a wonderful safety net for people that might have to wait longer for with low acuity problems um, they can constantly be checked on to make sure that there's nothing changed and so the system can safely manage them until they can get a resource to them so yeah, it's changing uh, ch- that's changing quite significantly around Australia and, and New Zealand um, and I expect to see more of that occurring over time as more pathways and partnerships are developed. That's probably where we have some commonality. Somebody once said, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And, uh, you know, we have slowly started to switch off the red lights and sirens, and there's been lots of academic study. Uh, my, uh, Our friend of the show, Matt Zavansky, they recently had a, an ice storm where they announced, listen, folk, we are actually turning off the lights and sirens because of the weather conditions, because it's quite frankly dangerous. And, you know, the media went, well, why don't you do it all the time then? So maybe the penny has started to drop. But, uh, you know, how did you, and, and this this was probably on your watch as a chief mm. executive, I mean, how did you kind of lower the level of mm. red lights and sirens or lights and sirens response? What was the, was it an incremental thing? Uh, how did you achieve it in your service? We did it in a phased way. Um, uh, we, we basically, we, we, one of the things Ambulance Victoria has is a, uh, a very strong research team. And the research team basically looked at, uh, and electronic patient care records. They looked at the data from um, over a number of years for each each MPDS disposition and then looked at follow-up to determine whether that person actually, um, what was the disposition to hospital. And if, if from the initial call, you know, if, if there wasn't a particular care required for that particular disposition in a certain percentage of cases, 
then we're able to say, recommend to our medical advisory committee that that, that code should be changed, that the response to that code should be changed, either in, uh, to a lower acuity ambulance response or to secondary triage to, to manage them. And that went through quite a significant clinical governance review, including by one of the external agencies here in Victoria called Safer Care Victoria, which looks at the quality and governance, clinical governance of, our, of health services. Um, because you know, fundamentally we were changing the way and increasing risk in some people's minds, the way we respond. But it's proved itself to be quite successful. It was a saving grace to the ambulance service during COVID because it allowed uh, it allowed that area to be consider- considerably grown to be able to manage the different types of caseloads that were coming through during COVID. Um, and uh, um, it's 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 now been accepted way within the community of uh, of an ambulance response. So when people call. Triple zero nine one one. They no longer expect that they will automatically get an ambulance. They, you know, as often described to people, you don't walk into a hospital triage and say, "I'd like you to admit me to the coronary care unit." You get triaged. You work out what's wrong by a health professional, and you get the care you need. It's exactly the same being applied in the, the paradigm of ambulance service delivery here in Victoria and a number of other states around Australia. I may well steal and use that soundbite, Tony, but uh, it kind of comes on to the, the, the question that one of the things that we're having to do here is manage the public's expectation mm-hmm. that just because you dial 911 uh, or the three-digit number mm-hmm. wherever you are, that we're going to come flying in and, uh, and and deal with you. How did you educate the public? What was the process? Uh, so there were a number of factors we did, and particularly during the pandemic, we really escalated this. It, it, um, a few years back, we did some really good research with a group called Behaviour Works at Monash University to look at um, um, uh, how do you change and shift community behaviour because we'd seen lots of signs on ambulances overseas that uh, um, sort of, you know, gave people a bit of a, a jolt to say maybe you shouldn't call us. And the risk is, and you'd be aware of this, with some of those campaigns, you, the most vulnerable people don't call. It's actually the ones that they, the, the older, elderly and others. So we did a lot of work with Behaviour Works to look at the nuance of messaging and uh, um, um, uh, essentially uh, did a campaign that basically was around save triple zeros for emergencies. Um, in an emergency, call us. In it for everything else, you know, had general practitioners, primary care physicians, pharmacists and others, um, and published some good research on it that, that actually shifted community behaviours and demand for ambulance services. Um, um, so it's And so the, the community as a whole bought into it because in their mind, it's about that ambulance is not available for my child if it's out doing a low acuity case. So it's a, it's a finite resource that's designed with highly trained professionals able to respond to these things. For everything else, there are other pathways you can go to. I learned two valuable lessons from my old boss, Dr. Chris Carney in the UK, Mm. where he said, the more we brag about how fast we are, (laughs) the more people call. Mm. And the more we tell people not to call, the wrong people will will continue to call and the right people will not. And so to your point, uh, he was Mm. spot on. Mm. Thank you, Chris. I know you listen once in a while, boss. Moving on to the the staff themselves, Mm. obviously, the pandemic has quite honestly kicked the you know what out of out of medics around the world it's mm. been we've been the safety net we've been there we've mm. been ever present we've uh, had an increased line of duty death because of just in the early days infection how how are you guys looking after your people it's an ongoing challenge uh, you know, the prior to the pandemic and in australia um we had you know some of the worst bushfires leading up to the pandemic and really people haven't stopped since since about mid to, to late 2000 and, uh, 2019. So um, they're an exhausted, uh, exhausted as are all health professionals from the pandemic. And I think it's um, they're changing the way they think about their role, they're changing about what they may want to do into the future. 
Um, Ambulance Victoria and a lot of the services around the country uh, have been very heavy. I know actually around the world now, uh, recognising the importance of mental health, um, uh, supporting mental health, you know, significant programs for psychologists, peer support programs, um, uh, the provision of chaplaincy um, to, to support people during their time of need and to encourage and break down the stigma of mental health so people feel comfortable to, uh, to as my colleague calls it, get a checkup from the neck up regularly like you do your, with your GP or primary care physician um, for your mental health as well. And um, that's making a difference. But I've got to say, um, and certainly those services have increased during the pandemic and are supporting paramedics, volunteers and their families, but, you know, some of the biggest challenges, the cause of it, they, they, they tend to be downstream. The cause, the issues, the, you know, the workplace factors. You know, Ambulance Victoria, the last few years, is public knowledge went through a pretty significant review looking at uh, um, uh, bullying and harassment and uh, um, uh, diversity, management diversity in the organisation. Uh, and had a significant external review done to help identify ways forward on that, which they are now implementing. Um, but it's, you know, there are significant workplace factors that, that impact on the staff and, you um, uh, you know, whilst it's great to see organisations focusing on the mental health and wellbeing, it's also important that we understand uh, what's causing the injuries in the first place that we need to prevent, and that's much harder. Thank you for bringing those points up. If you're listening to this podcast in the week that it's published, coming up in uh, next week and the week after is uh, Lexapol across all of its titles, EMS 1, Police 1, Fire and Rescue 1, Corrections 1, are having a wellness week where there's going to be a lot of content and a lot of products for everyone out there talking about wellness, about looking after yourself, looking after others. And so look out for that. It's coming up. Um, you'll hear a lot more of me, a lot more of our friends, Mike Tegman, uh, Chris Sebelero and I are going, are going to do a live podcast to the air where you're going to, we're both going to be on camera. So hopefully they've got a strong lens for that one. Uh, but that's all coming up in the next week or so. So please look out for that uh, on EMS one and, uh, and on the place that you get your podcasts. Controversies. You, 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 you mentioned, and thank you for mentioning you know, the issues you had in Ambulance Victoria. But uh, you know, what what are the sort of big ticket items and the things that uh, Australian ambulance services are having to contend with right now? A number of them, and, and some of them are common across the world. But demand increase on demand, I think, is is, is high and continuing to be high for ambulance services during the pandemic and, and post the pandemic, and it's um, it's it's a big challenge. Um, um, Issues of transfer of care at hospital, a real challenge for ambulance services um, in, in the time it takes to transfer patients. And, you know, again, um, there's no easy fix for that. You know, there's a, we talked before about secondary triage and better triaging patients who don't need to go to hospital and governments are investing heavily in different models of care. But the reality is that um, the, the crews are spending longer at hospital and it's going to take some time for those health systems to redesign themselves and rebuild their workforce on the back of the pandemic. So there's no easy fix for that one. But that's frustrating, as, as, as you, your listeners would appreciate. If you're a paramedic who's gone to university, gone and done your training, wants to deliver care and you're spending a significant proportion of your shift in an emergency department caring for your patient before you can offload it, uh, that can be demoralising. That actually goes, you know, probably against why you joined in the first place. People understand it, but it's a big challenge. So I think that's a big issue. Um, grappling with the issue of changing gender and uh, diversity in the organisation. So, um, you know, the, the, that requires an understanding of the way in which we, we operate. And you and I grew up in a system where there are behaviours and things that occurred amongst our peers and others that would never be acceptable today. And so organisations need to shift and change and acknowledge that and reflect on behaviours and how they do things differently. And I know that's a big issue that Victoria's grappled with and grappling with, but it's an issue, to be honest, that every EMS service around the, around the country and the world, probably if you opened them up and looked inside, would have similar issues 
um, that that need that need to be addressed. The, the broader issues of um, ambulance service rostering was designed for people of our generation and ilk. You know, where you often work full time and you you know you, you you had someone potentially at home caring for the kids. It's a different world nowadays, and so how do you create flexible flexibility in rostering and those type of things, but still meet the needs of a cha- of, the, of a community that we're here to serve? All those things that the EMS leaders are now having to grapple with in Australia and, and overseas, particularly in Australia. It's a it's a challenging issue and uh, one that will be um, uh, is on the is strongly on the agenda for uh, for all the services um, going forward. You know, if someone's just joined the podcast at this point in the in the discussion, they'd think we're talking about Middle America here because, you know, we have global ambulance similarities. And I've I've been very fortunate to be able to travel the sort of ambulance world in my in my career and and meet folk from Australia, New Zealand, and of course across Europe and South America. And it takes about three minutes. You put a paramedic from a different country in the room. And they'll come up with the same set of challenges and issues. Um, we have a global ambulance hospital handover delay issue right now. And the, I think the global answer is it's capacity and flow. You pointed that out. It's hospitals' inability to push people through the system. Um, hospitals, and again, my, I'm going to keep going back to my old boss in the UK, would say it's like the M25 or the Beltway. You pick a, pick a motorway. When it's going well, it's going well. But you have one car that crashes. The whole thing then just backs up and backs up and backs up, and it takes a long while to unpick that. And that's what's going on, I think, in our hospitals. And, of course, also that if you can't unload the back door, then you can't load the front door. And so that's another issue that uh, – issues that uh, – we have to deal with. Uh, here in California, we are running a bill in our local uh, General Assembly on ambulance patient offload times, and we'll see how that goes. It may not actually be successful, but it's the shot across the bow. Before we were recording, Tony, you mentioned that uh, the, the, the one way that hospitals or, or may or may not have uh, proposed to handle it in Australia. Yeah, well, uh, one of the other states is, a few years back had a similar sort of uh, approach where hospitals had penalised for delays. And, you know, it was suggested to me by some colleagues that, you know, those hospitals then just budgeted for that as a cost. Um, so, you know, it's uh, sometimes the, uh, you know, when you're making these sort of changes, they're worth considering, but you've got to consider also um, you know, do they have perverse um, impacts on behaviours of, uh, of health systems? Uh, well, Joan Lurie, great organisational psychologist, talks about system theory and she says you change something in the system, you change the system. So when you change something for a good reason, sometimes, you know, you, there, are, there are downstream impacts you hadn't considered that would result from uh, pe- people behaviour in those systems. Right. It's the law of unintended consequences, mm. or indeed, uh, Sir Isaac Newton had it a long time ago. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, Tony, thank you for chatting to me. I always ask the classic Rob question at the end. Is there anything I've forgotten to ask you or anything you haven't told me? Um, look, uh, other than the fact that, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, Australia is a great country to work in, and it's, uh, you know, the EMS services and ambulance services here um, you know, it's you can sometimes look through the lens of the challenges, but it is it is still I consider one of the best jobs in the world, and it's uh, you know it is a wonderful country uh, um, um, with uh, wonderful opportunities for people to work in in our uh, EMS and ambulance systems uh, down here. 
See, that prompted a question. So we <laughs> talked about Aussies coming walkabout to work in other countries. Mm. If I'm a paramedic, young, keen, willing to travel, and I want to work in Australia, is that possible? It is. It is. Um, uh, you have to have rights to employment here in Australia. So um, um, the, that often requires a, a working a visa to work in Australia or per- permanent working rights, depending on the service you're working on. Um, and but it, but the reality is now you don't have to apply for the service to get registered. You apply to the registration body; they consider your qualifications overseas and will make a determination. And if you're a registered paramedic, you're a registered paramedic here. And so, therefore, if you've got those rights to work in Australia and you're a registered paramedic, there is plenty of employment down here. Well, there you have it. So please don't blame me, ambulance owners, when they all <laughs> go, to, go to work at the Bondi station because we saw that documentary of them pulling people from sharks' mouths uh, on the on the on the television. Listen, Tony, thank you so much. If we want to follow you, get hold of you, or just keep a track, I know you're active on social media. How can we do that? Certainly, I'm on LinkedIn. You find me on LinkedIn and also Twitter, AGWalker01 on Twitter. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, always always enjoy a good engagement on social media. So feel free to reach out. And, uh, yes, you do. And actually, you're quite responsive too. If anybody makes a point, you, you have no hesitation in making a point back. And uh, <laughs> it's always refreshing to see. So don't forget, everybody, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Amazon Music. And please, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on the platform that you're listening to us on. So listen, mates, and actually, of course, a talking to an Aussie we, we use the word mate regularly so thanks mate for being a, a part of uh, today's show um, and uh, you can keep up with me as always on LinkedIn or I'm UKRobL1 on Twitter uh, Tony again thank you mate good on you I love it to chat good on you too and uh, so this has been EMS One Stop International I've been Rob Lawrence and until next time bye for now <laughs>